Hello and welcome to another edition of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Before we begin today's episode, a really important announcement. We always strive to keep the Folklore Podcast as accessible as possible for everyone, and when we can't do this, we make sure that we're clear as to why. The subject matter of today's episode is one of those occasions. Please be aware that this episode deals with adult themes, discussion of a sexual nature, and additionally deals at one point with the subject of abortion. If any of these things suggest to you that you should not be listening to this episode, then please do stop now. It is rare that we need to give a content warning, so when we do, we want to make sure that you understand why it's necessary. Thank you. Today, we look at a much earlier period of history than we've examined very often, as we travel back to the 11th century to look at the uses of erotic magic, the ways that they were viewed by the church, and the penitential literature that appeared around them. Joining me to discuss her research into this topic is Larissa de Freitas Lith, who is currently completing an MA looking at the regulation of the sin of fornication in the writings of the 11th century bishop Burkard of Worms. Larissa lives and teaches in Curitiba, Brazil, from where she joined me to discuss this subject. So, Larissa, welcome on to the Folklore Podcast. It's lovely to have you with us. Uh, before we kick off, um, I'll just ask you to say a little bit about yourself for everybody, uh, where you are, what you're studying, and um, what your interests lie in and how that got you into doing what you're doing now. Uh, so, my name is Larissa, Larissa de Freitas Life. I am in Curitiba. Brazil. It's in the south of Brazil. And I'm currently doing a master's in history. And I focus mainly on medieval history, like early medieval history. And I I, I started originally doing like researching magical practices, which is uh, what I was interested in. So then I did that for my undergraduate course. And then I tried to do a master's about the same subject, but um, I could not find someone to supervise me with that. So then I started doing the, like researching the same document, which is the Corrector Siwi Medicus by Burkett of Worms. So I was uh, researching the same document, but focusing on uh, sexual practices. And then I managed to find someone to supervise me. And now I I found this kind of niche in which I can um, research both magic and sexual practices, which is the erotic magic bit. And it's been quite fun. I've been able to do some stuff around that. Um, my interest, really, it was... Um, I've always been interested in this kind of intersection between Christian practices and practices that are not Christian. So there is this kind of space where things are a bit of a mess, right? So um, you have uh, 
people who live in a Christian environment, but then they practice things that are all over the place and that are, well, some say it's superstition, some say that it's like a rural practice. And I've always been really interested in that because um, to me, it, it has always felt like it was, I don't know, it's kind of a quite beautiful way of looking at the world and like a creative way of making sense of things. And I've always been interested in that. And um, I, I've struggled a bit to start with uh, in like finding a way to look at that because it's kind of hard to find information about it, uh, especially in history, because then you, you need to have evidence and uh, primary sources that talk about what you want. And it, it's been a bit of a struggle, but then I've finally found myself in this area, which makes sense to me. And you're working in a, in, in a particularly... Uh old area of our history as well really aren't you because you're focusing mainly on sort of uh literature that's coming out of the 11th century so we're looking a, a very long way back um before we go into that in a, in any more detail it's probably worth just asking you to describe a little bit about the person who you're focusing on here for quite a lot of this, Burkett of Worms, um, because the, there may well be some people who who aren't familiar um, with with him. I mean, he aside from the fact perhaps that that he was a bishop um, in in the time of the Holy Roman Empire, but probably don't know much more than that. So, can you just say a little bit about um, his writing and what what he was focusing on? Yeah, so like you said, uh, Burkett was a bishop, and he was he was alive in a very particular um, time. So then, like you said, we have the Holy Roman Empire, and then at this time we have the Etonian dynasty, which was. Um, I don't know, it was in government, right? So they were in office, so to speak. And um, they kind of had a, a, a weird, to us, kind of government in which it was not very centralised. I mean, it was, but it, in its very own way. So then they didn't have, like, a, a capital city and they didn't have, um, like, a place where government was. So then the emperor went about the empire visiting uh, places and then that's how government worked. He would go around visiting places and uh, he would normally stay at a church uh, with some bishop. He would travel about and then uh, some churchman would receive him and then he would stay there, do his business and then move on. So then it was, uh, Burkhard was kind of strategic in this sort of way because he was a bishop. Uh, the Diocese of Worms at this time was uh, quite important. So then we're going to see it, um, I mean, talking about church, right? So then if, if you look at church history, it's kind of important in that sense. And then he wrote uh, the, his main work, which is the, the Cretum, it's a book that talk about 
talks about various things like um, communion, fasting, um, murder, and all sorts of things. It was directed mainly at of the clergy. Um, but then we have book 19, which is the Correctus Civil Medicus that I study. And then that's a little bit different. It's um, a penitential manual. So then we have questions uh, asking people what they had done. So um, did you get drunk during Easter? Uh, did you sick up the holy wafer? Things like that. And then the penance as, uh, assigned to each case. And then this work became kind of not super famous, so it's not the most famous penitential, but it became uh, known for, he became known for that. Uh, now your research is, is focusing on um, how this literature, how penance was, was used in the 11th century, particularly in Germany, um, to regulate sexual practices. And, and that's where this kind of erotic magic side, which we're going to explore in a moment, comes in. Can you just explain why women were seen as a threat at this time in terms of their sexuality and, and how that led to this kind of literature being created? Yeah, so um, it's quite odd. Uh, so this um, women's sexuality is a threat is an idea by um, Ruth Mazo Karras. So she writes a little bit about it. And I kind of uh, took this concept uh, because I thought it was very applicable to my case. So then women, they were considered as a threat for various reasons. Um, so they had children, right? So they could mildly control uh, the lineage of men uh, if they chose to have children if they chose not to have children that would affect men a certain way uh, they were seen as super bad and super dangerous so um, uh, people thought that women would seduce men so, so the idea about women it's quite odd because they were seen as like receptive and passive so women's role uh in sexuality specifically was well i guess in general <laughs> at the time uh as inherently passive so they had to be passive and uh whenever they were not it was seen as um a transgression to their original role so they were not allowed to be passive to be sorry, to be active in any way uh, when it comes to seducing someone or sexual positions. And however, they were seen also as this super seducing, um, being able to manipulate men and to control them and to make men do what they want by dangerous means. So then that's how they were seen as a threat. And I think magic, uh, originally Ruth Maze of Karas does not talk about magic, but specifically in my case, 
this kind of sex magic was only done by women. So uh, they could threaten men like that as well. They could um, control them, not only through their sexuality, but also through magic. Now, when we think about sex magic now in modern times, I suppose people very much think about this concept of you know, love potions and, and ways of, of being able to get a, a partner, uh, whether initially sexually or for, for relationship work generally and these kinds of things. But what are we talking about in terms of the time that you're studying in the 11th century? I mean, what kinds of magic are you looking at? What, what, what is particularly considered to be erotic magic or sex magic? Um, uh, and how does that fit into the whole kind of broader concept of magic at that time? Um, so it, specifically in this document, um, we, we have, well, actually in general, erotic magic, like where historians normally split it into two categories. So we have, um, love magic as such so to seduce someone or to get them to have sex with you or even to get them not to have sex with you so then you have this seducing magic and then you have the causing of impotence which was something that was done as well um, and then on the other hand you, you have this magic that was uh, called birth magic so basically abortion and then it's normally split like that so then you have um, you want to have sex or you want someone not to have sex with you and then you you don't want babies basically and then um, contraception and abortion are kind of hard to distinguish in the sources um, so then you said yeah, nowadays we think of love potions and that sort of thing. And we do have something similar in Burkhard's work. So, but it's funny if you think about it, because like it's so not sexy, like it's really completely disgusting. And so we have... Uh, the idea was to get something, um, normally some sort of secretion or some body part. So you have in other documents, people getting like bits of animals um, when they were in heat. So like testicles or donkey's penis and that sort of thing. And then grinding that to a powder and then putting it in food because uh, they believed that those properties would then uh, go on to the person that you're trying to seduce. Uh, in Burkhard's work, we don't have this animal stuff. It's mostly from humans. So then you have uh, a lady who drinks her husband's semen in order to specifically seduce him and make his love for her more ardent. And that's one of the things. And then another one is like you get a live fish, you stick it in your, <laughs> into your vagina until it dies. So you wait until it's dead 
and then you take it out and you cook it and then you feed it to your husband and then that's going to make him hot for you supposedly <laughs> um so then the idea of that is that you are getting those sexy juices uh inside the other person and then kind of binding them to you um my favorite one perhaps is the one where you you get to you make bread on the lady's buttocks so then lady gets naked um you need some bread on her buttocks bake it and then you feed it to the man you're trying to seduce and then that is going to make him super aroused <laughs> or super in love or something so it's not exactly a love potion but like it's something that you have to ingest and then the fact that you are getting that um I don't know that element from someone else and then swallowing it and that, so then it's binding the two people together. So these these kinds of ideas are quite different to when we look at slightly later in in history so the kind of 16th 17th century where people are going to see magical practitioners for these sorts of things but as a service so somebody else is providing a charm or something uh to enable these these relationships to bind or these sorts of things to happen this is very different isn't it because this is very much the onus is on one of the two people in the relationship to perform the magic not to have somebody else perform it for you where do these ideas come from so are these spells uh, rituals however you want to describe them at this time are they something that people learn through word of mouth? Are they recorded somewhere and people reference them? How how do they come about and how do they spread the, these magical ideas? See, I have no idea. <laughs> um, with the laser stuff that you see uh, with magicians or like hiring someone to do it, I don't know, th there are things that are very old. So then I was looking at it this week and then you have, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's like this Greek figure and then it's like a little statue and then lo lots of spikes going through it. I don't know if you've seen it before. No, I don't it? think so. But like, uh, yeah, it's, I'm not, I don't like saying voodoo doll because it's not like it's its own thing. I think it's called a coloss. I don't remember the name exactly, but it has its own name. And uh, so that you have the little figure and then it has lots of spikes going through it. And it was originally placed on a grave. And then uh, it's like a mishmash of Egyptian, Greek stuff. And then that is something that is uh, asking the aid of spirits or possibly demons or something um, to make that person fall in love with them. And then you see that a lot. So, so later on, you still have that sort of thing. You still have these people putting stuff on graves and like asking for the aid of 
um, spirits or demons to make someone want you. And I don't know exactly how there is a continuity or if, if there is a continuity between that kind of thing and then the early modern stuff. Uh, but I find it really amazing that it is similar sometimes. I just don't know if you can find uh, all the, connect all the dots all the way to the early modern period to see what was going on. But if someone does do that, I'm going to be very impressed. Mm -hmm. I think it can be very difficult sometimes to do that sort of thing because I think there is a tendency often, isn't there, to say, well, all of this stems from you know ancient beliefs pagan practices all these kinds of broad terms that really have no significance or no useful description at all it's very much that people try to find this continuation to show that this stuff comes from that root and of course it's not always the case is it these things don't always connect like that it's not that straightforward yeah, like I, I, I think that people like the idea of there being a connection, like you said, more than the reality of it, which is probably so incoher incoherent that like you cannot make sense of it. Um, but like specifically about the the women in Burkhard's work. So then, like, we know specifically with the ab abortion things, like, you have herbals and you have um, medical treatises that were around at the time. And we know that these women probably did not have access to the writing. Um, but people believe that there is, like, this kind of network of women who share their, no their knowledge with each other. So that's a possibility that they were just passing it on um, to each other. But yeah, like I, I'm not 100% sure. Um, but it would be interesting to see like if someone tries to do that. Um, and like you said, the whole pagan survival stuff or um, I don't know, ancient pagan practices. We know that so many of those were invented in the 19th century by some bored Victorians, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. The the bored Victorians have a lot to answer for in folklore generally, That's and, and it fits in here as well, absolutely. Um, we'll come to the actual penance and itself in a moment um but but before we do can you just say a little bit about the standpoint of the church generally in all of this how does the church view women generally how does the church view magical practices and especially uh erotic magic in in this time um so the the point of view of the church like at this time, it's not super harsh towards magic. So um, as it carries on to the early modern period, it's going to get harsher, right? But now it's not so much. And I think, uh, especially in Burkhard's work, it's because um, there wasn't this idea that magic was actually effective. Um, that they could actually do something with magic. 
it was more the idea that um that they believed in it that was the issue you know so then they they had these beliefs and then they could tell it to other people um and then make other people believe in this silly thing and then i think it seems that to Burkhard that that's what the, was the main issue um the the idea that anyone could believe that anything else anyone else but god could do certain things so like uh people and demons did not have the capacity to actually uh look into the future or to change the weather or to change people's emotions that was n- impossible because only god could do uh, such thing and the idea that these women saw certain things because we we have questions in which they uh say that they went on a nocturnal cavalcade with diana or hold uh, uh, you you know there are many <laughs> this is a, a like quite complex uh belief right that so many people write about it anyway but the idea was that these were illusions and that the demons caused them to have these illusions and the problem was that they were believing the demons and <laughs> not the church so then the penance is more to it's not super harsh i don't remember exactly what it is to be honest in this specific one but um it's not very harsh and it's more for them to like pay attention and believe the church and not believe the silliness of other people or the what the demons are showing them because that is not true it's just an illusion is it uh, is it the case that it's a class divide as well do are the church seeing people who have these beliefs as being you know the lower classes or the uneducated people the same as we see in later time periods so i i think there is a possibility that the there is a class thing but through the sources sometimes it's not too clear um in other books of the decretum we have uh questions that are directed to the clergy so then they are asking the clergy if they are doing something similar so then presumably the clergy would be more educated um n- i mean it, it's hard to know because depending on where you are and like what the parish is like it depends right but then um i think to me it seems that at least in burkhard's case and in germany it seems to be a thing towards women because if you look at other sources and um other people writing about spells there aren't men practicing spells there are um members of the church doing these things as well but in burkhard's case it seems to be only women and um there are authors that argue that it's a specific german thing <laughs> to apply it to just put the blame on women and i still don't know exactly why that is like i'm hoping they'll be able to study this further and then find out um 
but I don't know for sure yet. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? And and hopefully, the, as you say, the information is there to find, and and in time, maybe you'll be able to come across it. So, so in in book nineteen of Burkard's work, he's he's referring to these practices that you've covered and the penances for them. So, what what are the kinds of penances that have to be served for this um, practicing in erotic magic and the, these sorts of things? Yeah, so when it, we talk about penance, um, I used to think just from watching films that you go into the little booth and then you say what your sins were and then the priest tells you to pray, I don't know, 10 Hail Marys or whatever. But in the Middle Ages, it's a little different. So then you, you don't have... Um, the the confession booth it's not a thing yet and the penance is mostly in um fasting so days uh, fast days basically uh so then you you also don't confess as often um as later so you confess maybe once or twice a year depending on the case and then the priest assigns um fasting days and it's the most common one is a karina which is a 40-day fast and depending on the penance then that can be added to so then you for example the the penance with for the semen drinking is of seven years so a, a fast of seven years on appointed days so then you know that for seven years, on certain days of the year, you are going to just have bread and water. Um, and then that varies. Seven years, it's quite a harsh penance, uh, comparatively, because uh, if you look at other penance for magic, it's just one kanina. So it's uh, 40 days of bread and water, and then you're done. But for the semen eating specifically, uh, it, it is longer because you're not allowed to eat semen because um, you're meant to use it for conception. So then if you are wasting that semen that could be used to have a baby, uh, it's really considered as a really bad thing. Uh, like not only the pollution that you are causing, like so then you wouldn't be allowed in the church and this sort of thing, but then uh, especially because of wasting that, which could be a life. Um, and then you you have even harsher penance for abortion. So then if you actually do manage to abort your child it's 10 years and then if you go back and then you have murder and other cases it's even harsher and um, the harshest of them all is excommunication obviously but for cases of magic it's relatively lenient uh, because it was not seen as a real threat it was more the threat that you believed in it than you were actually doing something bad. Does the church view sex 
at this time purely as an act which must be undertaken for conception? Is there is there any anything within the church's teaching which allows sex to be an act for just pleasure, or is it purely it is to procreate? It is to procreate, um, but it's not as as bad if you're not married. So then um, it's kind of weird, actually. So then if you have two single people and they do have sex, like it, it's not seen as such a bad thing because uh, you have at this time this belief in the um, humors and the human body secretions so then uh it was believed that if a, a man or a lady uh they they needed to expel those juices and then if they didn't it would be bad for their health so then they needed to expel the secretions and if you were single and you went to a prostitute as a man, for example, it was seen as a bit better than if you just masturbated. But if if you are married, then it becomes a whole new thing. So then you, you need to have sex with your partner for conception. And then, like, I digress, but the the ideal was actually not to have sex at all if you could avoid it. If you could help it, do not have sex at all. Become a monk. Uh, If you do want to have sex, be married. (laughs) And then you can have sex with your partner on very, very specific days. Very specific. Um, There are books where people analyse this and then you can only have sex like... I don't know, like a hundred years, a hundred years, no, a hundred days of a year. So then you can't have sex before Lent and then you can't have sex on Christmas or on any holy feast. Um, It's very limited. If you are married and you are going to have sex, it must be penis in the vagina, lady laying down. You cannot deviate from that. Um not allowed to masturbate god forbid do not use a dildo it's horrible anyway there are so many guidelines to that it's very impressive like because they do go into a lot of detail how widespread is the use of erotic magic at this time are we talking about Something which is undertaken by a large amount of the population, or is this quite a, a quite a contained thing that that um, Burkett is writing about? It's kind of impossible to know because of the nature of the sources, but um, quite a few of these questions about penance they are replicated in various manuals. So then you have, um, I don't know, it starts with the Irish penitentials, right, which are earlier. And then people keep copying the same questions over and over, over the centuries. So then even 
if you don't know exactly like how many people are doing it, probably someone's doing it. Like there's something going on that they need to keep rewriting the same question. With Burkhard, uh, it's interesting because quite a few questions about magic, um, they are unique to him. So then they are not in other penitentials and it kind of indicates that it might be like something that he has actually observed uh, while in office as a bishop. And then with other other penitentials, you, you don't really know that because you just have a question, oh, did you do this? And then you have an answer. You don't have any context whatsoever. Um, so probably there was at least, I don't know, one person doing it. And um, probably the more the question gets copied, um, it, it, it probably, like I cannot affirm anything with 100% certainty, but probably uh, represents that there were more people doing it or like it was still a need in some capacity. Do you think maybe it's the case that um, Burkhard was just particularly interested in magic in the same way that King James was particularly interested in witchcraft and, and you know, wrote wrote a lot about it and, and well, we all know what he was responsible for. Um, is it just the case that Burkhard perhaps had an interest in that area that other bishops didn't have so much of an interest in? What do you think? See, it could be... Um... Because, yeah, most of the questions in the uh, Corexa, they are about magic. Uh, and then, like, it has different bits about magic. So then he says, like, uh, about magic, and then a few questions, and then goes on to something else. And then, ah, oh, again, about magic. Questions, questions, questions. Ah, oh, about magic. <laughs> um, so it, it could be. I have not found proof or other evidence that proves that but it could be because people have interests right it's just more difficult to ascertain if someone from the 11th century had a specific interest because you don't really have things that prove it but it, it I think it could be yeah, it's it can only ever be speculation, can't it? Because as you say, the sources don't give that information. We don't have information about Burkard from other sources in that level of detail to know. But it's it's fun to speculate on. Just just to wrap this up, then finally, um, when does this all change? How how long does this view go on for from the church, uh, and how long are these kinds of magical practices undertaken? Whereabouts in history do things then start to change and, and take another route? So I feel like as we approach the 16th century, probably it starts to change. Like with the 11th century, it's already a bit of a change because we are going to have the Gregorian Reformation, the Gregorian Reform uh, in the 12th century. So then uh, it's kind of already a bit of a change there. So then at least in terms of um, 
Well, uh, quite a few things, right? Because during the Gregorian Reformation, we have this, um, that the people must draw a line, like a hard line between the sacred and the profane, the clergy and the laity. So um, there is that. But then as we approach the 15th, 16th, 16th century, then it changes even more. Uh, I'm not really not a specialist, so I don't know exactly what causes that change. Um, but there is definitely like a clear change. Yes, and and things then take a very different route, don't they? And and um, uh, as I was alluding to earlier, perhaps you know, magic becomes very different enterprise it becomes more of a service perhaps than than something that's practiced by individuals in a more wholesale way the church's views certainly change very much at that time as well it's fascinating to look back earlier at these sorts of sources from from this time um it's not an area that i think is covered in as much detail historically as as you know our, our more recent history, if you like, the early modern period is particularly well covered for for magic and for witchcraft and for the views of the church on these things. Um, but going back to the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, there's really a lot less coverage and it's talked about very little compared to those times. So it's been fascinating to, to just get a little bit more insight into how things went at that time so i thank you larissa very much for coming on and taking the time how much um longer are you studying this particular subject for well um thank you for having me uh i think it's good to spread a word about the middle ages because you just hear horrendous things about the middle ages that everyone was stupid and non-showered and um that witches were killed in the middle ages which is not true um anyway uh i intend to keep studying this source i mean i finished my masters in august this year and then i want to start applying for phd programs so i i have the intention to keep studying it for a while but it will really depend on um whether I get accepted other places, if someone will supervise me, if someone is hearing this and they want to supervise me and <laughs> give me funding, by all means. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think it, it really does deserve further study. It's, it's a fascinating and, as I say, uh, sort of more obscure area that hasn't been looked at in, in a huge amount of detail. Uh, and I hope you do get the opportunity to, to carry on and study it some more because I think there's a lot to find out. And I would certainly, for one, be interested to hear a lot more about it. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks to Larissa for giving what was her first ever podcast interview. Don't forget that all of the episodes of the Folklore Podcast and the Folklore Podcast Book Club are absolutely free to listen to on our website or via your favourite podcast app of choice. If you enjoy what we do, please do consider hitting the donate button on the landing page of our website or signing up for our Patreon page to help us to continue generating content across the Folklore Podcast network. 
If you haven't checked it out already, our new long-term project to save, preserve and make available folklore materials for future generations of researchers, the Folklore Library and Archive, has now launched its web presence. We're adding materials as they're catalogued and prepared, but you can visit www.folklorelibrary.com now to see how the project is shaping up. If you'd like to learn more, or volunteer some time to help, then please contact us using the contact form on the Library and Archive webpage. There'll be more news about this project soon, as more resources become available, and we integrate more closely with the Folklore Podcast itself. Please also follow the dedicated Twitter account for the Library and Archive, at Library Folklore, for more news. Thanks for listening. See you next time.